What's up, friends? It's E, and welcome to this week's episode of Midweek Rise Up. I am so grateful for all of your support. It means the world to me, you guys. I love seeing the Bible verses that resonate with you and the different words of encouragement that you're leaving in the review section. It makes my heart so happy, and it makes the podcast page a place for that deep breath that we all really need. So thank you for that as well. So now let's get to the good news. The word for this week is idols. Whether you grew up in a church home or not, I have no doubt that you've come across this word. But I want to take it a layer deeper and really dig into what is an idol, what does it mean to worship an idol, and why do we worship them? But then you might say, okay, E, that's cool and all that we've been able to identify these idols, but how do I remove them from my heart? I got you. We'll touch on that also. From a biblical definition, as mentioned in Romans 1.23, an idol is anything that you elevate above God or give to God's rightful place in your life. In the Webster Dictionary, an idol is an image or a representation of a god used as an object of worship. And then below that, it has a little side definition that says a person or thing that is greatly admired, loved, or revered. I find this back-to-back definition fascinating. On one hand, you have the idol being a god in lowercase g that is an object that is worshipped, and then the other you have a person that you completely admire and love that can be an idol. We'll get into that as well. But first, to set the tone of all of this, I want to jump into two different parts of scripture that really illustrate for us the meaning of idols. Both of these passages in the Bible are very personal to me because I've physically been in the exact spots of where they took place. The first is at Mount Carmel in Israel, and the second is in Athens, Greece. I can't even begin to tell you there is nothing more powerful than being able to go to these places in the world where the Bible absolutely comes to life and you literally can walk the word. It is so cool. Okay, let's hit the Old Testament first. There are several instances in the Old Testament where the Israelites became involved with idolatrous worship and built altars for these idols, even though God told them not to. Uh, which brings me to Mount Carmel in Israel. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 16 through 45, some quick background. This moment in the Bible takes place during the time in Israel when there was a severe famine and drought was going on in Samaria for three and a half years during the reign of King Ahab and Jezebel. God basically wanted to prove that he, not the idol gods these people were worshiping, controlled the reign and sent a massive drought. So keep in mind, before the Jews even enter the promised land, as written in Deuteronomy, God warned them to not worship any of the Canaan gods. But unfortunately, they did anyways. So the reason why Mount Carmel is so important is because this is the place in scripture where Elijah famously confronts the false prophets of Baal, and the Lord has a victory over the prophets of Baal. Side note, to all of this, Baal, spelled B-A-A-L, means Lord, little L in quotation marks, and the Canaanites worshipped Baal as the storm god. So basically, if he had a t-shirt campaign, his slogan would have been something like, he who rides on the clouds. So to go back to the importance of this location, Mount Carmel is known as the Holy Mountain, and this is where all of this essentially takes place. The word Carmel comes from the Hebrew word Karem, which means vineyard because it was such a fertile and lush mountain. And in Egyptian records, Mount Carmel is mentioned as the holy mountain since it was a high place for idol worship. So during ritual times, the priests of Baal would do these 
sacrifices and really weird and wild dances where they would basically scream and cry out and then do these self-inflicted injuries with spears and swords. Just straight bizarre, like not the type of people you would want to have a late night casual campfire with. Just bizarre. So to go back to the beginning of this passage, Elijah goes to meet Obadiah, and Obadiah is the palace administrator for King Ahab, who I mentioned earlier, and this guy is all about Baal. King Ahab rocks that he who rides on the cloud shirt seven days a week, like totally bleeds for Baal. But Obadiah, his palace administrator, was a super devout believer in the Lord our God. And while King Ahab and Jezebel were savagely killing all of our God's prophets, Obadiah hid a hundred of them in a safe place and didn't tell anyone. He did tell Elijah when they met. So back to them meeting, like we were talking about, they meet and Elijah tells him that he is going to speak to King Ahab and basically wants to set up this competition between Baal and the Lord our God. So when Elijah meets up with King Ahab, he says in verse 18, You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So after Elijah says this, King Ahab goes on this hunt and starts assembling all the prophets of Baal. And Elijah stands before all the people who are starting to gather to witness this and says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people really didn't know what to do. I don't even think they even knew what was going on. So they're just kind of standing there. And Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets that is left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Small parentheses here. Keep in mind that no one knows about Obadiah's secret that he told Elijah of hiding 100 of the Lord's prophets. So it's kind of cool that Elijah is covering up for him here. And then in verse 23, Elijah says, Go get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I, Elijah, will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it as well. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So the table is being set, no pun intended, and Elijah lets them set up the altar and preparations to their highest standards. I mean, these guys are going nuts. They are ruthless to prove that their god Baal is the OG, the god. So the competition begins, and these prophets are calling out to their Baal for hours. I mean, from morning to noon, and then noon into the evening. And what I love is Elijah totally throws shade here and starts to taunt them because he knows our God is going to pull through like zero doubt. And he says to Baal's prophets in verse 27, shout louder. He said, surely he is a God. Perhaps your God is in deep thought or he's busy or he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and he needs to be awakened. 
So these prophets, they go ballistic. I mean, they're shouting louder. And now it comes to the point in this competition, if you will, where they're slashing themselves with swords and spears to prove that that's going to somehow awaken him or, you know, bring him back from his travels, if you will. And it's getting all types of crazy. And people are starting to lose interest because nothing's happening. I can't even imagine the the type of attention span this, this audience would have to have for this type of fiasco. So now it's Elijah's turn and he calls the people over and everyone's watching meticulously because they just came from crazy town and now they want to see what Elijah has. So he takes 12 stones in honor of the 12 tribes of Israel and starts to build an altar in the name of the Lord. And he strategically arranges the wood and cuts the bull into pieces and lays it on top of the altar. And then he says to the people, go fill up four large jars with water and pour it all over the offering and the wood. So now I can imagine the people are totally jiving with this competition now because instead of watching the psychos spearing themselves, they get to actually participate in what they think will be Elijah's complete failure and demise by process of elimination and be able to say that their god, Baal, is the real God. But what I love about this is the confidence of Elijah, who tells these people during a drought, mind you, to pour four large jars of water on an altar, not just one time, no, not one, three times during a drought, four large jars of water poured out onto the altar three times that is supposed to be lit by a fire. Okay, quick emphasis on the number three. Some of you guys are totally catching what I'm throwing here, but let's be real. Have you ever tried lighting wet wood? Can you imagine Elijah asking these people during a drought and a famine of three and a half years to go and collect all the water that they can kind of find in that little area, dump it all over this altar? I mean, I remember living in California during one of the droughts. You can't even water your lawn, let alone shower for 10 minutes without someone making you feel guilty. And then here's Elijah like, this water you have access to? Yeah, drench the altar. And then comes the prayer in verse 36, which ties all of this together at the end, where Elijah says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Immediately after that prayer, the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and it also soaked up all of the water that was in the trenches that was used to drench the altar. And then a few verses later, there was a heavy rain that started to come down. How cool is that? If you guys ever have a chance to go to Mount Carmel in Israel, please go. I hope it rains for you like it did for me when I visited. Love this chapter in the Old Testament. Jumping to the New Testament, hop over to Acts 17, where Apostle Paul is in Athens, Greece. And there were so many idols and gods, little g's, in Athens, especially during that time, to the extent that they literally even made an idol to, in quotation marks, the unknown god. 
just in case they missed anyone. <laughs> and I have to say, just having been in Athens this week, it's wild to be able to see the remains of the Temple of Zeus and then even the Acropolis and the Parthenon where this exact chapter in the Bible takes place. And Paul is preaching to the Athenians in the shadows of this massive temple that was built for Athena in the 5th century BC. And it's bone chilling to stand on this place. This rock is known as Mars Hill if you guys ever have a chance to make it over over there. And it's right at the base of the Parthenon. And just to envision Paul boldly proclaiming the truth about the one true and living God to these people, it was pretty surreal. So in verse 24, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. The philosophers and poets that Paul is referring to in these verses, I won't even begin to say their names because I will totally butcher them. I, okay, I'll try with the first one. There's two of them. The first one's Aratus. The second one starts with an E. Look it up. I'm not even going to begin to say it because I will totally do no justice to that name. So these false gods, these idols, how do we identify them? Do we even deal with them today? Yes, we do. I know I do. And we might not have these massive temples being built, but there are some within our heart that have been built, just how it's mentioned in Ezekiel 14. Want to know the quickest way to identify an idol in your life? Tell me your worries, your anxiety, your jealousy. One of my favorites, Charles Spurgeon, used to say about being able to identify idols within your own heart that where your treasure is, your heart will go. And if that treasure be taken away, your heart must ache. Do not take your simple trust in God and instead place it onto humans, fallen, broken humans. I always laugh in interviews when people would ask me, who's your idol? <laughs> I swear it's, it's no doubt the top, one of the top 10 interview questions out there. We are so fixated on idols as a culture. It's, it's amazing. You have American Idol, you have sports idols, you have fashion idols, etc. Be careful when you tell someone you're my idol. The weight of that on both ends is extreme. On your end, for putting them on a pedestal that rivals God, and on their end, for not being able to uphold a flawless standard that might let you down, since they are imperfectly human. And as Spurgeon said, once those idols of yours die, because you know, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, that'll be the end of your earthly joy. And I've done this before, you guys, and I truly, it's, it's hard, especially in relationships and friendships. I'd make an idol out of it, and I'd put it above everything totally above and before everything. It is so unhealthy and it's heart-wrenching when God takes it away from you. And then even when you're addressing that pain and you say to yourself, I need to do whatever works for me. I deserve this. I deserve that. I'm going to go out and do this, blah, blah, blah. You are running away from the truth and you're making yourself an idol now. 
And I know that some of you right now are, are probably saying, okay, this is a little bit too far. But is it? Think about it. What is your heart feeding into? And then on the flip side of that, what are you being fed? Because there's an old Native American parable that I love about the story of the two wolves. If you hadn't heard it, look it up because I love at the end when the grandson asks his grandfather, which wolf wins? And the old Cherokee man simply replies, the one you feed. Similar in scripture in Proverbs 11:27, whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Bottom line, if you want to find the good, you'll find it. And if you want to find the bad, <laughs> you'll find it too. God sees your heart and want to know what's at the height of risk from mounting idols in your life? The price of your mind and the price of your heart. In Ezekiel 14, 4 through 5, God says, I will give them the kind of answer their great idolatry deserves. Thank goodness, you guys, for grace, because I would much rather receive the gift of grace from God that I can't control than a quick fix solution that I can. Because although we might not ever understand the full mystery of grace, what I do know is that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. So how do you know when you're worshiping an idol? Well, let me answer that question with a question. Does it lead you to sin? Does it distract you from God? Does it consume you? Do you value it over people? Would you, in quotation marks, die if it was taken away from you? Would you compromise your values and biblical virtues for it? I mean, I'm not saying that the gifts and good things that God blesses us with aren't to be appreciated and enjoyed. Please know I'm not saying that or that we're supposed to be ungrateful for them. What I'm saying is that it's important to remember these gifts are gifts. These people in our lives are blessings, these jobs, these opportunities, and they are not to be confused with the gift giver. So all that to say, you guys, examine your heart. Take note of the things that you've prioritized in your life, things that you dream about, things that you hold precious and holy, and things that you love. Does it pull you closer to God or does it push you further away? I mean, this takes a deep grasp of discernment because this is a true and authentic examination. Where is God positioned in your heart? What about his word? What about your quiet time with him? What surpasses it? You cannot serve two gods. So once you've identified your idols, first pray for God to remove them from your life. And if they can't be removed, then ask God to give you his understanding and his grace to be able to set boundaries and say when you're noticing the idol take over your heart, okay, I will not build this an altar and be very intentional about those words. And instead, I challenge you to go throw water on the wooden altar that you have built for the Lord and watch it catch fire. Let's pray. Father God, remove the idols from our heart. And if we have a hard time searching our heart for what those idols are in our lives, reveal them to us. Teach us your ways. Don't allow us to grow complacent or neglect your principles. Please just show us so clearly the difference between you and the things of this world. Because greater are you who is in us. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys are loved. Go rise up.
Thanks for joining us today. I hope that these words encouraged and challenged you and postured your heart for the rest of the week ahead. Feel free to share this episode with your friends, family, or on your social media. And in the review section, let us know how we can be praying for you. We're so grateful to have you join us right here every Wednesday on Midweek Rise Up.